I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has led to the British Petroleum Company announcing it would divest its stake in Rosneft, the Russian state-owned energy company. Shell is quitting its joint venture with Gazprom and ending its involvement with the Nordstrom II gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. And the governing body of European soccer moved its 2022 Championship League final from St. Petersburg to Paris. More importantly, an alliance of governments has announced sanctions aimed at punishing President Putin, members of the Duma, and Russian oligarchs. These sanctions will also destabilize the Russian economy. One indicator of that is the 25% fall of the value of the ruble in the last four days of February. The Russian government tried to build a fortress economy. Did it succeed? How resilient will the Russian economy be to sanctions and the withdrawal of foreign partners? And more to the point, how responsive will President Putin be to hardships facing the Russian people, as well as to his more immediate circle? To discuss these issues, I'm pleased to welcome my colleague at the Fletcher School, Professor Christopher Miller. Chris is a historian of international politics and economics with a focus on Russia. He is a prolific scholar and the author of many articles and three books, including his 2018 publication, Putinomics, The Price of Power in Russia. Chris, thanks for joining me on Econofact Chats. Thanks for having me, Michael. Chris, let's lay the groundwork by talking about the Russian economy. First, how big is it? Well, it's a relatively big economy um, on the world stage, about the size of Spain or Italy, but the population is far larger. So on a per person basis, uh, Russians are substantially poorer than uh, than is typical in Europe or than you'd see in the United States. So you're referring to income per capita, but income per capita doesn't capture the degree of inequality. Is there evidence of great concentrated wealth in Russia? There is. There's a class of uh, business people who are often referred to as oligarchs who have accumulated vast fortunes measured in the billions of dollars um, by acquiring control of companies, especially in the natural resource sector, um, which they acquired after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, during the 1990s. And how did they get these resources? Well, when the Soviet Union was ending and independent Russia was emerging, the entire economy was privatized because in the Soviet period, it was all owned by the state. And during this process of privatization, uh, the, the structure was set up in a way that let a small number of individuals unfairly or sometimes illegally gain control of really valuable assets. And so in the 1990s, a number of uh, these uh, business people um, seized or um, other, uh, otherwise acquired control over really valuable companies that had major stakes in the oil industry, for example, or the gas industry. And these individuals have since played a, a dominant role in Russian business and also a big role in Russian politics. So you mentioned oil and gas. I've heard it described that 
the Russian economy is basically a very big gas station because of its dependence on energy resources. Maybe we could also describe it as a gas station with a bakery, since Russia, as well as Ukraine, are important exporters of wheat. Does this characterization capture some essential truths, or is it far too simplistic? Well, it's a bit too simple. It's it's certainly true that Russia's got a, a large natural resources sector. And if you look at Russia's exports, you'll find that depending on the price of oil in any given year, around half of Russia's uh, exports are uh, mostly oil and the natural gas and coal, a close second and third. But Russia also has other industries too. It's got a domestic internet technology sector um, with a, a domestic Russian search engine that is more popular than Google and domestic uh, Russian social media companies that are more popular than Facebook. And it also has a big industrial base that it inherited from the Soviet Union that isn't internationally competitive, but is uh, very important in the Russian military industrial complex. So it's it's not simply about the energy resources, even though they are very important in Russia's economy. When you say they're more popular, you mean they're more popular within Russia than Google is within Russia or Facebook right. is within Russia. That's and when right. you say that it has an industrial sector it used to produce this car called the Lada, which I guess was kind of a joke. It's not a BMW, right? That's right. There were, there were longstanding quality problems in Soviet industry that have persisted in, in Russian industry today. There Some parts of Russian industry have been modernized thanks to foreign investment. Uh, so, for example, today you can find Volkswagen um, uh, run car factories in Russia that are producing uh, cars that you could buy elsewhere in Europe. Um, Maybe not today anymore, right? <laughs> well, we'll we'll see. I think there's a, a a lot of changes underway this week with the sanctions and with Russia's capital controls. Right. So yesterday, maybe not today, probably not tomorrow. <laughs> the conventional wisdom is that the Russian economy is basically a kleptocracy, benefiting the oligarchs and especially Vladimir Putin. But in your work, you argue that in fact Putin pursues a hierarchy of interests. First, political control, then social stability, and third, efficiency and profit. Can you explain what you mean by this and what Putin has done to achieve these goals? I think a lot of people like to see Putin as, as an oligarch or someone who's trying to maximize his, his wealth. But really, the, the right way to think about it is that he's a czar. He's trying not only to maximize wealth, but also to maximize his glory and his power over Russia. And I think if you look at him like you'd look at, say, Peter the Great or one of the historic leaders of Russia, you'll understand things better uh, than if you think he's he's simply an oligarch. And to maintain control over Russia, he's focused on uh, making the state more powerful in uh, Russian society and economy by establishing state control over strategic sectors of the Russian economy, like the energy industry, uh, but also by making sure the state that he controls is uh, is fiscally stable. So he's made sure not to run large budget deficits, to keep inflation relatively low when possible, and to run a, a pretty a conservative set of economic policies focused on stability above all else. So let's talk about that a little bit in the context of the sanctions that are being placed on Russia right now. What's What are some of these sanctions? So over the past uh, couple of weeks, we've had two big rounds of sanctions that the West uh, has imposed on Russia. The first um, restrict the transactions that a number of big Russian banks can undertake, uh, partially severing Russia from the international financial system, making it much more expensive to do business uh, in Russia. And then the second set of sanctions uh, make it difficult for the Russian central bank 
uh, to try to stabilize the value of the ruble. And the Russian Central Bank used to keep a lot of its foreign exchange reserves, its dollars and its euros abroad, and now it's no longer able to access those. And so the ruble has fallen pretty dramatically, which is going to increase inflation in Russia and make Russians uh, poorer when you adjust for the price changes that are coming. So I've seen it quoted that about half of the foreign reserves of the Russian Central Bank are held abroad. And the way a central bank tries to preserve the value of its currency is to sell foreign assets and buy its own currency when its currency is plummeting. But the Russian Central Bank is now prevented from doing that. And as I said in the introduction, we've seen a 25% fall in the value of the ruble between February 24th and the end of the month. So this is one set of things. How does this affect the average Russian citizen? Well, it's bad news for the average Russian. The, the currency, when the currency depreciates or falls in, uh, relative to the dollar or to the euro, Russians have to pay uh, more for their goods that they import from abroad. So inflation increases and uh, their inflation adjusted incomes decrease. And so we've seen for the past decade living standards in Russia declining. And I think this year as well, we're going to see uh, declining living standards as well uh, because of these sanctions and the government's economic response to them. And also, I've read that there have been bank runs. That is, people have been swarming ATMs trying to take all of their money out of banks. This too can be inflationary, right? That's right. It remains to be seen, I think, um, just how uh, bad the stress in the Russian banking system uh, will be. But we've already had the Russian Central Bank doubling uh, interest rates uh, overnight, imposing capital controls. So there's clearly a lot of financial stress uh, in, in the Russian financial sector, which will mean less lending. Uh, it'll be more, more difficult for companies to invest because it'll be harder to get loans. Um, and this also showed that all of the Russian government's talk about sanctions proofing their economy ended up not being very effective because the, the West was able to simply freeze the Russian central bank's assets abroad and, uh, and make it unable for them to access that money. So we've been talking about the way in which the banking system has been affected and how that's affected regular uh, Russian citizens. What about the efforts to target particular individuals, oligarchs and members of the Duma, Putin himself? How effective do you think these will be in perhaps changing Putin's view of the costs of invading Ukraine? Well, if you look at the macroeconomic impact of targeting most individuals, it's pretty limited. Um, certainly there's wealthy individuals in Russia and you can restrict their ability to um, to own businesses abroad or transact in, in the US and Europe, but ultimately it doesn't have a big effect on the overall economy. And politically, I think it's also unclear to what extent this will make a difference. If you imagine an oligarch calling up Putin and asking him to change Russian foreign policy for the sake of their business, uh, that'd be a very dangerous decision for that oligarch uh, to make uh, because Putin's in charge and he, he pressures the oligarchs to, to do his bidding and not the opposite. Even if all of the oligarchs call at the same time? <laughs> well, it, it's hard to know that there are enough phone lines at the Kremlin to get them all on the phone at once, but <laughs> I, I would be very skeptical. If, if I were an oligarch, I'd keep my political views to myself. So overall, Chris, you said that the sanctions on individuals is not going to have a big macroeconomic effect. You seem to suggest that the sanctions on banks and the ways in which the central bank, for example, can't access its foreign reserves, which has caused the plummeting of the ruble, 
will have a big effect. Overall, can you comment on Fortress Russia, that is the economy being a fortress, and what do you think will happen to the Russian economy? Well, a lot of that depends on the, the political response within Russia. What we saw after 2014, the last time uh, Russia faced a round of sanctions from the West and the ruble fell pretty drastically, was that the Russian government sought to make sure that its financial position was stabilized and it shifted the cost of adjustment onto the population. So it let the ruble fall. It let incomes, uh, when you adjust for inflation, fall. And so the average person in Russia got worse off, but the government uh, didn't have to run a big budget deficit and its financial position was uh, relatively stabilized. That's certainly what the Russian government's going to try to do again, is, is shift the costs of uh, the decline in the ruble onto the populace. And the question is whether they can get away with it again, because it's not a popular thing to do to force the average person in Russia uh, to get poorer for the sake of, uh, of stabilizing the government's budget. How long did that last in 2014? What was the duration of the sanctions and the pain felt by the Russian populace due to these sanctions? Well, the sanctions that were imposed in 2014 are still in place. They are, they're weaker than the ones that have been imposed the past couple of months, but they're uh, still present today. And, and the pain that they imposed, uh, in my view, lasted for some time, because in addition to the immediate effect of driving down the value of the Russian currency, there's a longer term effect of reducing the amount of investment in Russia. Uh, and so it has an effect not only on the short term, but also on long-term growth in the economy. And if you look at uh, the typical Russians' incomes, when you start adjusting for inflation, what you find is over the past decade, uh, disposable income uh, in Russia has been stagnant at best and probably declined. The Russian government stopped publishing the data uh, two years ago and they, when they started looking too bad over too long of a time frame. And as you mentioned, these sanctions are more severe and they're also of a different quality. For example, um, the central bank not being able to access its reserves and more companies are pulling out, I imagine, than what we saw in 2014 as well. Is that correct? That's right. And the capital controls that uh, the Russian government has imposed um, this time are new. In 2014, the Russian government didn't have to impose any capital controls, uh, which are restrictions on funds leaving the country. Uh, this time it's different. Now there are very uh, strict rules in place as of this week uh, that limit the ability of Russians or foreigners to move money out of Russia. So um, that has the effect of supporting the value of the ruble, at least in the short term. Um, but it also means that uh, business is far more difficult to undertake because if you're a foreign company with a subsidiary in Russia, uh, now it's not exactly clear whether you'll be able to move any money you make uh, out of Russia um, after the fact. And so all sorts of companies from energy companies, like you mentioned, Shell and BP to automakers, to consumer goods companies, they're all rethinking their position in Russia um, because it's going to be so much more complicated in economic and political terms. And I think if you look at the Russian market, it's Russia's a 3% of GDP. So it's a really small share of the world economy. And it's pretty easy for most companies in most industries to just think about doing business without Russia. It's just more straightforward. And even more to the point, the cancellation of the Nordstrom pipeline is something that I don't think anybody would have thought would have happened until most recently, correct? That's right. And the shift in Europe on 
um, financial sanctions on Russia is is really the surprise of uh, of of this war. The, the Europeans had traditionally been less willing than the United States to impose sanctions on Russia because there's more trade between uh, uh, Europe and Russia. Um, but Europeans are also more directly threatened by the war uh, that Russia has unleashed on Ukraine and the risk that Russia might do something additional uh, relative to other European countries. And so Europe has responded very aggressively on sanctions, trying to punish the Russians uh, and induce them to stop the war. Uh, and that surprised people in Europe as to how uh, vigorous the response was. And it's also, I think, really shocked people in Russia as well, who weren't expecting anything uh, nearly as drastic from Europe. And the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which is a pipeline that runs from um, Russia directly underneath the Baltic Sea to Germany, uh, was a symbol of German-Russian business cooperation. And now uh, its future is very much in doubt. It probably will never come online. And for example, more symbolically, Aeroflot is not allowed to fly outside of Russian airspace anymore, at least not to Europe. That's right. And, and the entire Russian aviation sector is actually uh, in facing deep difficulties. Uh, most of the aircraft, as I understand it, uh, that are used by airlines in Russia are leased via companies uh, domiciled in Ireland, which is part of the European Union. And so there are all sorts of second and third order effects of sanctions um, that are put in place that make it just very difficult to run any sort of business uh, in Russia. And my view is that the longer these sanctions stay in place, the the more uh, we're going to see entire industries moving out of Russia because you can't get financing, you can't get insurance, you can't move technology into Russia. And even if you do have a functional subsidiary, you can't get your money out of Russia in the end. So, Chris, you were saying that the Russian people have been going through a lot of suffering from 2014 on because of sanctions. It seems like this is of a different order of magnitude and it may be more durable, the sanctions that is. And uh, the isolation of Russia, and the therefore, unfortunately, the suffering of the Russian people might be magnitudes higher. Would you agree with that? It's certainly going to be higher. I think we're going to have to wait and see uh, just how bad the effect is on the Russian economy. Um, but there's there's different views within Russia as to uh, whether this is uh, a positive or a negative. There are there's a, a not insignificant part of the Russian population that would prefer autarky, self-sufficiency to be cut off from uh, the rest of the world. There's a long running strain in Russian political thinking that sees connections with, uh, with foreign economies and international trade as dangerous to Russia. Uh, and so certainly measured in economic terms, this is going to, um, to, to reduce incomes and make people worse off. But there, there certainly is a strain of thinking in Russia uh, that suggests this might not be a bad thing for, um, for Russia in the long run. Even when the people have to drive Ladas instead of BMWs? <laughs> well, we'll have to wait and see how the, the, the sort of populace reacts. But I, I think one of the striking things of, um, of the post-2014 sanctions was the extent to which most Russians believe that the policy of import substitution, that is producing things at home rather than buying them abroad, was a success. And I think if you, if you dig deep into any of the particular success stories, that are often cited. You can all really ask some tough questions about whether they were actually successful. But popularly, it's widely believed that import substitution uh, was a was a good thing for Russia. Chris, your most recent book, which you published last year, is titled "We Shall Be Masters: Russian Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin." Many people are focused now on just such a pivot. Could China help Russia avoid the most dire consequences of sanctions in a mutually convenient arrangement? 
Russia sells wheat and oil to China, for example, and in return gets goods that it needs? Well, I think we're about to find out to a certain extent uh, just how straightforward it might be for China to, uh, to buy a larger share of Russia's commodities. What we've found in the past is that in previous instances of, of this type of sanction uh, is that it's difficult to conduct um, trade with someone under as extensive sanctions as Russia. Now, sanctions could get more tough still. The U.S. hasn't imposed, for example, secondary sanctions on Russian oil exports of the type that it's imposed on Iran in recent years. Um, but I, I think we should be skeptical of the thesis that China is going to be able to uh, fully replace Western trading partners. Uh, maybe for buying certain types of commodities, they can, but for supplying technologies, there's a lot of technologies that uh, China simply doesn't have and are only available uh, in, in the US, in Europe, or in Japan. And right now, uh, with the, some of the new sets of sanctions and export controls that have been put in place, Russia is simply cut off from a lot of advanced technologies. Chris, you've been very gracious in your time and in joining me today. And I've tried to be nice, but I'm going to end with a hard question. As an economist, I know the perils of forecasting, but nonetheless, I'm going to close by asking whether you have any guesses about how all of this might turn out. Well, when I when I wrote Putinomics uh, uh, several years ago, um, I my, my forecast at the end of that book was that Putinomics would persist, at least for now. And we've seen since that book was published four more years of the basic formula of Putinomics persisting. And as the Russian leadership enters this current economic crisis that they've brought upon themselves, they're going to try to implement a similar set of policies, shift the cost to the population, defend the government budget. Um, but I do think we're beginning to see the beginning of the end, at least, of, of this era in Russian politics, because as we've discussed, the cost on the average Russian is just increasing and increasing over time. This crisis will be far deeper uh, than the last economic crisis in 2014. And I've, I've no doubt that the Russian leadership can hold out for some amount of time. But I think uh, when we get to the end of the current presidential term of of Putin in 2024, I, I suspect many Russians will think it's it's time for change. And I think many Russian elites as well will think it's time for change by that point. Chris, thank you very much for joining me today. I know since you're one of the leading experts in this field, you've been in very high demand lately. And I appreciate you taking the time to be my guest on Econofact Chats. Great. Thank you, Michael. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.